to the next episode of the Digital Access Show. Today, we are talking with the wonderful Shannon Tao. Shannon is an experienced designer. Shannon, thanks. Thank you for having me on and good afternoon to everyone or whatever time it is you're listening. <laughs> Shannon, tell me a bit about yourself. Yeah, so as Narelle said, I'm an experienced designer and have been in the design industry for, this would be my ninth year now, and freelancing for the last year. Um, so I have like two key areas of my business, so working with websites to ensure they're usable, accessible, and interactive um, when possible. And then what is slightly more of a niche area is I do a lot of work in the museum space, so interactive installations. So think that you walk into a museum or, or art gallery, do anything fun and interactive, someone has to design those and put in like how it will work and operate and look. And yeah, I do a lot of work in that area as well. Actually, that's quite an interesting area because I'd never really thought about that. So when you say experience and designing an experience for in an art gallery or a museum, what does that encompass? What what are you thinking about there? So it really depends because, um, like, uh, the work that I've been on varies so much. Not one of these installations is completely the same, but one really good case study of mine is called A Date Erases, and it's an installation in the Australian Sports Museum, which is here in Melbourne at the MCG, and it's about horse racing. So the brief was to do an experience about horse racing but didn't mention gambling at all. Mm. And so through doing that, uh, we thought it'd be fun for people to be able to colour in a horse template. They'd be able to scan it into a booth, name it, and then it would race against other visitors' horses. Oh, and so, yeah, it's quite an engaging experience. Um it does have some accessibility hiccups, like it's very visual focused yeah. and that is something that would be lovely to improve later on that I'm aware that that's a ongoing issue within that industry. Yeah. Um, but when it came to that experience, so one of the concerns was bottlenecking because their target market was school groups. And so yeah. they'd come through a lot of people all at once needing to get through quite quickly. And so, I was thinking about all areas of that experience. So Fruit of a Colour In template, it was originally A4, but reducing it to A5 meant it was a lot less time to colour in, and then we'd be able to change some hardware decisions, and it was also more economical for the museum to print themselves. So we could have two to a sheet rather than one, and also less paper waste. Yeah. Um, we worked on testing different markers and so working out what would be fastest to colour in but still get the best result on like the screen when it was digitally like crossed over. So we um, tested with pencils, markers, crayons. We that must have been fun. It was. We roped in one of the developers' um, young children to like <laughs> do that as well, which was really great. Yeah. And crayons were the winner by far because yeah, it had a really good colour result and faster colour in, but also it cleaned off the tables quite well because, like, yeah, that was something needed to think about as well. And then getting more into, like, timing nitty-gritty. So I also did animation direction on that project. And so 
you know, with those big school groups, okay, so there's a balance of, like, making it worth waiting, but, like, not too long that people leave. Yeah. And so being, like, okay, if we're taking into account the time we need for the hardware to do what it needs to do, like, how much time are we giving them to name the horse? Um, Through naming the horse, it was also, like, oh, it can be decision fatigue if they have to, like, just think of something from scratch. And there's also the hiccup of, oh, they could write a swear word or a slur. Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we ended up having, like, two large lists and our fabulous, like, copywriter and, like, content strategist, like, yeah. went through and made sure that there was no iffy combinations. And so there'd be two dials and, like, the lists and you could do different uh, combinations one of my favorite personal favorites was inexpensive pancake <laughs> um but yeah and so yeah what would be a good amount of time to give them and like make sure that people aren't getting bored the final like uh outcome were a race every three minutes mm. which is quite good um and then we did have some moderation that was inbuilt as well so if people did the funniest thing to a primary school person is to draw a penis <laughs> um, and so if that did happen uh we didn't want people to think that the machinery was broken but we also yeah. didn't encourage that and so the horse would scan in but it would be completely white and all the color <laughs> wouldn't show and yeah. that was the same for a few other things so yeah again, the same content strategist write this whole list of swear words oh um, my gosh but even through testing, uh, it, there were still some things that slipped through the cracks. We were not expecting a primary school group to uh, draw swastikas or, like, enslers. Mm -hmm. And so we did have to make some refinements to moderation as well because, yeah, um, you can either have a moderated or an unmoderated experience. And yeah. so moderated means there's a staff member in the room at all times, whereas unmoderated there isn't. Yeah. So this was unmoderated, and so there were, like, multiple levels of backups. So, yeah, that first level of if they're doing the wrong thing, we can detect it and solve it from there. We also had a back-end moderation system, so if something slipped through and someone had saw it, they'd be able to remove it um, from a computer in the office, and yet again, that would strip the colouring, not remove the horse. But worst case scenario, it slips through and no one catches it. It's only ever on screen for at most three minutes. So yeah. that was yeah. how we got around that. Must have been a lot of fun. It was. And yeah. that's just one. Like, I've been able to work on so many great, like, wonderful projects. Yeah. Um, last year, I was working on a piece for the Melbourne Holocaust Museum. I've worked on pieces for the Melbourne Zoo before, yeah. and, like, the State Library. Not so much outside of Victoria, but a couple of experiences in Western Australia, the ACT, and yeah. hopefully internationally soon. Wonderful. What about the web experiences you've had? What type of work do you do there with um, websites? Yeah, so with websites, um, the user uh, experience uh, aspect of the museum work blended really well so I technically started in like digital design first and yeah. so I just kind of came back to it a little bit after spending some time truly dedicated to the museum stuff and so it works really well so just to 
touch back a little bit, a lot of the museums in Australia have government support. And so just like a website has accessibility requirements for government websites, it is the same for museums. So I was already aware of some of the accessibility concerns going into that because there's not only the web content accessibility guidelines for the digital part of the experience, but we were also relying on the Smithsonian accessible, um, I've got it here, Smithsonian guidelines for accessible exhibition design. Ooh. So that also includes like if you're in a wheelchair, making sure there's adequate space to go through, like reach heights, also like lighting, um, captioning, all of that yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. So that lended itself really well to websites because with those museum things, you're thinking about so many things. And so mm. in some ways it's slightly less for digital, but it can still have some really interesting uh, problem solving. Yeah. So in the past, I've done some work for very early on in my career was helping uh, optimize for David Jones checkout flow. I did the app design for Melbourne Spring Fashion Week app, um, like back in 2016, not giving away my age there. Um, <laughs> and semi most recently was I worked with HCF and was doing their design system. And so that's a private health insurer here in Australia. What type of things do you consider for accessibility and usability for a website? Yeah, so no. There's a mix of things. So typically it's easier to get uh, these businesses for the stuff that directly affects them first, rightly or wrongly. And so getting them to look at their colors, their typography, um, those are two big things. And that's generally like a really nice stepping stone to get to some of these like harder conversations. And so, yeah, because it's something that they can see for themselves. And yeah. like, particularly with color contrast, you can't argue that much against math um, yeah. it is. Um, and yeah just making sure so as part of some of the auditing services that I do like going through and making sure it's all keyboard accessible mm -hmm. making sure that their h1 to h6 set um, headings are formatted correctly because a lot of what is beneficial is a lot of the things that would benefit uh, people who need that accessibility features it also helps other areas. So like color contrast, it can help people with even perfect vision. Like it's going to be very hard to see light blue on slightly darker blue, like no matter how good your eyesight is. Yeah. Um, but with the H1 to H6 headings, like they also help with SEO. And so people are kind of used to these conversations around other areas about some of these things, but it's also just getting to think about the accessibility that as well. Yeah, I was interested when you talked about the keyboard operability. What type of thing do you look for there? So yeah, I look at the website. Um sorry, I cannot remember the URL right at this moment, but mm. yeah, inputting it into that and so have a rudimentary report and then go through. I typically just use my own keyboard as well and just make sure, particularly for the homepage, that everything is good. While some of these automated tools are really good starting off point, I feel like it's still really useful to just make sure that it works myself. Mm -hmm. And yeah, just making sure that you get through all of the headings of the top and to at least the first, uh, like, you know, it's not a very good practice to have like sub head sub menu items, but 
yeah, for first ones, making sure it gets to that at least. And then going down the page and yeah, making sure that uh, links to anything uh, makes sense. And so it's intuitive, it's like really getting my clients to avoid having read more or click here. Um, yeah. So, yeah. and that's something that slowly I think people are getting more around. I think what has really helped is some of these web builders that people are using are actually improving in accessibility themselves. So I've used Webflow quite a bit the past year and its accessibility tools are fairly good, at least as a starting off point. And so it'll be like, hey, like this needs some more context around this link or like you've left alt text off this image like before you go to publish. And so yeah. it does have like that fail safe, which is yeah. really good. Because, yeah, it's very easy for, like, you and me, like, because we know about it, to, like, make sure that it's included, but for people who aren't as aware and don't have malicious intentions, but, mm -hmm. yeah, just, like, a backup and, yeah, just, like, you, know, you can't really get mad about software, like, telling yeah. you what to do. Yeah, and that's it. I, I know myself that, you know, like, the click here drives me crazy because, obviously, I use the screen not obviously I use the screen reader and for me when I use the shortcut and all I hear is click here click here click here there's no context to what where the target is and that can be quite you know do I stay on that web page or do I go somewhere else and find another provider that will do the same work yeah yeah um one thing that I have found that's really interesting this past year, and I've been seeing it more and more, um, particularly on Woolworths, I think it was the first website I saw it, with links that do go to external sites. And so it opens in a new tab. Like a lot of the time it will have like another arrow to it to indicate yeah. that it's going elsewhere. Um, that's one area that I could improve on myself. I have used a screen reader um, on and off like mm. to do some testing but it is something that I know that I could get better in that area specifically and so I'm not sure if that's something that you've come across yourself but you know for me it's been really like nice to see that and something that I've been definitely implementing for my clients myself okay yeah no I haven't seen that but I'll have to go and have a look what about people that have neurodiverse um disabilities i'm not mad on the word disabilities but disabilities what what are the differences that you think should be incorporated into a website for someone that's adhd yeah what? so i'm in kind of two minds about that because i this is probably one of my biases because i do come from an animation background and so yeah. i do love adding animation where I can but yeah. I'm aware that that isn't always the best when it comes to people who identify as neurodiverse particularly ADHD and so ensuring that there's backups to turn that stuff off if it's over three seconds making sure that there's a the ability to turn that off very easily yeah but I think a lot of it comes down to layout and hierarchy and not just the people who are neurodiverse but everyone like having it clearly laid out the web page and very clear in the language and the wording no one really likes to read paragraphs upon paragraphs of jargon and mm. I don't think that's yeah 
think that's a pretty universal experience. Like you don't really want a website to make you feel like you're an idiot for not knowing something. And so using clear language, um, knowing when to scale back text, like I think that's something that I do struggle. Um, well, some of my clients struggle with, like they just, you know, some of them are writers at heart and like they just love to put everything on the paper. And I feel like I'm that um, kind of wet blanket being like, oh, this is all great, but how about we reduce it by like 25, 30%? And so we'll, you know, just make it, you know, you want everything on your webpage to be effective in like the communication. Yeah. When you go to design a website, you talked earlier about colour and um, typeface. What is your starting point? What's the process that you use to design a website, an effective website? Yeah, so with my clients, I generally get them to uh, fill out a form on my website. And so it goes into, because there's some things like, Accessibility and usability are important, but also making sure that it works effectively for my clients. So I get them to talk about what they feel is working well on their website, because a lot of the time it's for improvements rather than like creating one from scratch. And then what are the pain points? And so that can either be from them being like, oh, this is too difficult and cumbersome to maintain. I don't like the platform that I'm on, or they've received feedback from their clients or potential clients being like, I'm not able to find the information that I need. And so, yeah, that can kind of shape what platform to use. Like if they are tossing up on whether they do want to change platforms, that's another question. Like are there any integrations that they're using and like want to continue using or, you know, their CRMs. Having like calendar, like Calendly is a very common uh, integration these days. And so... Yeah, getting them to do all about what are their target audience because like that will also dictate the look and the feel of it and also like you know, there's sections so that's all kind of more like about their business like technical yeah. and then like getting into the visual and being like okay well what are some websites you like what are some websites you don't like and then having a stylistic direction so I have about eight different options and I think I have it they can choose about three so just words that stand out to them so like bold cheeky creative um minimalist maximalist um don't remember all of them off the top of my head but yeah you get a pretty good idea of like the look and feel of what they're going for once that form is filled in yeah and I typically meet with them face to face and just go through some other questions and so one of my like soon to be hopefully clients that I'm meeting with tomorrow. So he has a Calendly integration in his website that mm. it's password protected on his current website. And so I was just like, hey, well, did you, is this intentional? He's mm. like, oh, like kind of. He, he's like, look, a lot of people try to book meetings with me that aren't actually my clients. And so I just wanted to limit that. And so if my clients get the password, others don't, but I couldn't figure out a better way to do it. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, okay, well, like now that I know that, then we can definitely figure out a better way to do that. Yeah. Um, and also his logo is nowhere on his existing website. And so personal branding is like 
quite minimal. Yeah. And so that's definitely like things I'm going to be asking him. I have a list of about 15 other questions on top of that like form because now that I've had a bit more context through that form and like having a bit more in-depth look and being like, yeah, I can really get to know what exactly the problems are and what you're expecting. And so when I put together a proposal, which has like mood boards, like creative direction, like software recommendations, then they get to feel that they're really heard and like can really trust what I'm telling them because I know a lot about what their like what the problems are and if if they have a particular way that they want to solve them or I can recommend something. Do you take SEO and the SEO requirements into account into account when you design a website? I do. Um I it is one of my I do like to work with people who are a lot more knowledgeable about SEO than I am. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, a lot of the time we'll work with a copywriter. I have a few copywriters that I work with closely and they know a lot more about SEO than I do. And so while I do take every precaution and, yeah, really try and make it as best as I can, I'm not afraid to admit when something is a bit more out of my comfort zone and so get people who are smarter than me in that particular area to help me up and so that's what will be happening with this um particular potential client tomorrow what's the best part you think that you like about your job your work i really like the variety and i have a really big passion just to create the best user experience that I can, whether that's through a website or an interactive, immersive experience in a museum. Yeah. And so, and every job is so unique. And I really like just making, like thinking about all of the things that make that what it is and what it can be, and just making sure it works flawlessly. Because you know, a really good quote is good design is invisible. The bad design is very obvious. And so I'm sure we've talked previously about you know, poor experiences online for you, um, yeah. which is very frustrating. Yeah. But even for people who can see, there's a lot of really bad websites out there and like bad ways that people have designed things. And I really like being able to fix that. And so people not even having to think about it and being like, yeah, I don't have to think about this website. Like everything just makes sense. And like, you know, even if it's just a hop on, hop off, they get like everything they need. Like, yeah, I really enjoy that. Fantastic. Shannon, what's one piece of advice that you would give to any person that's looking at updating or doing a new website? Yeah, I would think about like, the role that they want their website to play in their business and so thinking back about okay how is my website helping me currently or how is it not helping me and so for like I did one a couple of months ago for a lecturer and so she works in sustainability fashion and for her, she didn't have an online presence. And so she's done a lot of research and she just wanted something like a spot that she could just direct people like when writing for grant applications, like awards. And so 
that was what she needed. Whereas I've done work for, I did an audit early last year about a fashion retailer, like secondhand one. And so their point of difference was they did verifications for working with very high-end items. And so think 300, um, three grand plus. Yeah. And so they offered a verification service. And so before I came in, they were like, oh, once someone buys this item, then, so if I was to sell you in this instance, like a Prada bag, so mm -hmm. you'd be like, yeah, Shannon, gonna buy this. And so I'd be like, okay, well, in this original circumstance, and I would send it to that company, they would do the verification process and then send it to you. So something that could already take a couple of weeks to send through has just added another like two to three weeks for this verification. Yeah. Now that's great for you because you know that you're getting a legitimate product, mm -hmm. but a better way of doing things is like to get that verification done ahead of time. And so yeah. if I have like five bags that I know are over this threshold and will require verification, then I can send them to this company ahead of time, get them back. And so the, you would be like confident in that you're receiving what you say you will. Yeah. Now, none of that like in a perfect world that's what it would happen like you there's still like risks around that yeah. but yeah everything is so different and I really like the variety that I've yeah I'm able to do with my work so is there a time when you would ever say don't put accessibility into a website no why not like, like there may be a point where like it's a give or take and mm. being like, okay, here is like some non-negotiables and here are things we can work. But I'm, no, I like to make my websites as accessible as they can be. And so even going as far as like delving into AAA where it makes sense. Yeah. But yeah, like we've talked about this before and you're like, you've said this statistic to me, like one in six Australians identify as disabled. And so if you're not including accessibility, then you're potentially leaving out like a market that could be purchasing from you, like either a product or a service. And so I just don't know why anyone would purposely not want to include it. Shannon, how can people contact you? Yes, so um, you can find me at shannontowell.design slash D-A-S-A-T. I've put together a webpage specifically for this podcast. And so I do have a usability checklist. If you are interested, you can go there and I will give that to you. Wonderful. Thanks. Thanks, Shannon, for your time. Thanks for coming on. It was really interesting to hear about your work and the processes that you use to get the information to build the website and make it as accessible as possible. Thank you. Thank you. It was really great. Thank you for inviting me.